0: I can't help, but I mean, when we went through the pandemic, I read the Parshiot with what's going on in my mind. You know, if we're reading about the Levites helping people, I thought about all those people helping people when there was no vaccine and why everyone else got to stay home. I've never been the same since pandemic because I understand the Levite. It illuminates things in Torah. So you have to apply Torah to the issues of the day, even if we apply them in very different ways. It doesn't mean that my drosh is your drash, but at least we're dealing with the same words. So I'll share some commentary on the second line of the parasha today, which goes like this. So God led the people roundabout by the Midbar of the Sea of Reeds. Now, the Israelites went up Hamushim. They went up armed out of the land of Egypt. Why did God lead the people round about at the beginning of Parsha? I bet a lot of you already noticed this. It's to avoid Gaza. So the beginning of the Parsha is when you leave Egypt, don't go to Gaza because you will end up in war. God says you will go the circuitous route into the wilderness to avoid the settlements of the Philistines, which are along the Mediterranean coast. And are definitely the quickest way to get there. So the parsha begins with when you leave Egypt, don't go, but don't go by Gaza because you'll get attacked. But the rabbis wondered because obviously the Gaza war wasn't happening then. What is up with being armed? And so I admit I probably shouldn't. You'll think less of me, but I think less of myself because of it. This is the first time in my life I ever noticed the word hamushim here and it jumped out at me. So in. Different Torah comes to you at different times. I never knew the Israelites went out armed from Egypt, right? I mean, I remember they took some silver and gold or whatever it was from people, loaned it to them, and and that's where we focus our midrashic attention. But they went out hamushim armed. So the rabbis weigh in, and they come up with different things. We'll see if your drash in your head does anything for you. We'll start with Rashi. So Rashi says... Well, we all know the famous Midrash of Hamushim, which comes from the Mechilta de Rabbi Yishmael. Hamushim should be read as the word Hamesh five, not as the word armed. You should read it as one-fifth. So read it as, and only one-fifth of the, the Jewish population, of the Israelite population, went up from Egypt. So that's the. So Rashi says, first of all, we all know the famous Midrash, which is four fifths of the Israelites. They were willing to see how their fate would go, not living in a place of the dangers of self-determination in your own land. And then he says, but that's the Midrash. So I'll tell you what I really think. God intentionally told them they would be going by an uninhabited route in the desert rather than Gaza so that they would arm themselves. Because when you go camping in the wilderness, you bring everything you need. But if you think you're going to an inhabited place, you figure you can acquire what you need there. So Whenever we pack to go somewhere, I pack with nothing. and We can get it there. We'll just buy it there. I can get socks in the hotel gift shop. Rashi is like, they're afraid. They'll think they can get socks and arms in the hotel gift shop and they can't. And it's here to let you know where they got their weapons later when they have to fight off Amalek. But then we get Ibn Ezra. Ibn Ezra says that... um It's important that they went out armed because they didn't go out fleeing like slaves, but they went out with the weapons of war with their heads held up high. Ramban, Nachmanides, says, Rashi is wrong. They didn't go out armed because they were going to the wilderness and not to the civilized area of Gaza. Duh, they went out fully armed just in case they were going to go the route of the Philistines in Gaza. They had to be armed. So that's uh, that's Sephorna. The Orachim, the Moroccan uh, commentator, says the Israelites needed two reasons for not returning to Egypt. Um, Because God is, you know, you read the Parsha, God's like, oh my gosh, they're going to want to go back, they're going to want to go back. So number one, God made them armed. So they knew if they returned to Egypt, they would be attacked by the Egyptians. So it would force them not to go back. but. Because it scared them to have arms, God reassures them that, don't worry, you're armed, but you won't have to use them. And finally, the Torah says, the Torah records that although God led the Israelites in the direction of the Midbar, of the desert, where normally no encounter with a hostile force would uh, need to be anticipated, nevertheless, they were armed because this would enable them to, to cope with an unforeseen eventuality which is, what if the Philistines came out from their area and waged a war of aggression on them in the safe area? In other words, they were going to avoid Gaza and not disturb the inhabitants, but they had to be armed in case those inhabitants came to attack the Israelites in a war of aggression rather than just in defending their territory. So I want to move to the Haftarah, to Devorah. Really, the Devorah is just raising a question about female stereotypes, and sort of gender stereotypes that we have. So many would see the gender stereotype, which is men are more aggressive, and men are ones who jump into fight, and women are more peacemaking, and more maternal, and softer, and less wanting to be involved in the ways of war. And yet here you have Deborah. And she's the greatest in many ways of the Shof team, of the judges. She's a prophetess. She's a woman who's like, we need to attack the Canaanites and we need to take care of this and we need to unite the people to do so. And then Barak says, no, you have to go. And so she says, if I go, you won't get the credit. A woman will get the credit. And then at the end of the story, either Devorah gets the credit or Ya'el gets the credit. So the character of Ya'el comes in and Ya'el kills King Sisera. So even though Barak and Deborah win the, the battle, the war, nevertheless, I mean, who remembers that? What people remember is who killed the king and Sisera is killed by Ya'el with a tent pole nailed into his head. It's interesting what she says when she does so. I bet your mother is going to be disappointed. Now you think she's going to, I think she's going to say because her little boy is not coming home. But she says her mother's going to be disappointed because she is desirous and expecting the spoils of war. She wants you to bring back the slaves and the booty. And so it's going to be interesting when we send you back without it. Now, what that tells me is it raises questions for me about just our gender stereotypes. Are Deborah and Yael transgressive, meaning they violate, violate the gender stereotypes of the time? Or do they just violate the gender stereotypes of our time? Are we inheriting Victorian and as a Elizabethan and sort of models of the way women are? And then we look back in the text and be like, wow, that's this is a real exception to the rule. But maybe it was an exception to their rule. After all, who pays the greatest price for not being defended in war? It's women. So the notion that we have that women all want to make peace, and men just want to make war and men are naturally aggressive and women are naturally peacemakers is a little bit. If, if I'm, if there's any truth to what I'm saying, which is, is it really kind of a modern European gender separation? And isn't it the case that in the ancient world, women are the most vulnerable and, and Ya'el and, and Deborah know that. And so that we shouldn't associate them with just in a sense being mothers, although there is a time for that as well. It came up, this stereotype of our time, with the events of October 7th. The intelligence units in Israel are dominated by men at the ho- It's like education in America, right? The principals are often men, and all the teachers are often women. Similarly, in the Israeli intelligence, people at the top are the men, but there are a lot of women involved in the actual intelligence gathering, especially women who choose to do that work rather than being in a combat unit or asking for an exception. So a junior Israeli officer in the elite 8200 intelligence unit warned over Hamas's plan of a mass infiltration event and was ignored by her commanders. She claims to have warned for 12 months her senior officers, and including one briefing with the prime minister about us, or at least her report was read to the prime minister, that involves a mass intrusion event by Hamas, 12 months. That was pre-October 7th. She says that her commanders repeatedly did nothing. At one point, they said to her, you are imagining it. So not so long ago, a couple of weeks ago, approximately 50 female army recruits refused to leave an IDF recruitment center and accept their assignment as military spotters. In Hebrew, it's Tats Pitaniot, famous unit. It's largely dominated by women. They are military spotters. They are put along the Gaza border to gather surveillance and report. Some of them were detained or arrested, but ultimately not charged. Remember that it was that unit that was part of the attack that took place at the Naha Oz army base during the Hamas infiltration October 7th, and it resulted in the murder of 15 female spotters and another six being kidnapped into Gaza as hostages. 15 In November, female spotters from Nahal Oz and the neighboring Kisufim revealed to Haaretz that their numerous attempts to warn the army about the activity along the border fence was largely ignored in the days and weeks before October 7th. These included reports about Hamas's preparations near the fence, its drone activity, its efforts to knock out cameras, the extensive use of vans and motorcycles, and even rehearsals for the shellings of tanks. The young women believe the officers' refusal to heed their warnings stemmed partly from arrogance, but also from male chauvinism. There's no doubt that if men had been sitting at those screens, they said, things would look different, she told Haaretz. The women's warnings made over several months did not correspond to the received wisdom that Hamas had been tamed and what may transpire to be another major mistake in the series of cascading errors. The women say mainly top male commanders, male top commanders dismissed their concerns, insisting Hamas had no plans to go to war and ordered them to stop being so alarmist. One of the soldiers who only agrees to be identified by her first name, Ilana, told Haaretz that they actually observed Hamas fighters training for assaults. She says, quote, a month and a half before the war, we saw that in one of the Hamas training camps they had built an exact scaled model of our observers' position the one like the one we operate. They started training there with drones to hit the machine gun shooter. And in the last two months, they started sending up drones every day, sometimes several times a day, right near the border, about 300 meters from the fence, sometimes even closer. Some of the petani Pitaniot reported that Hamas gunmen were rehearsing attacks on armored vehicles using a replica of our Mark IV tank. They were digging holes and placing explosives along the border, Um Israeli media have have aired interviews with border lookouts complaining that they were ignored and were told to stop raising alarms, which partly could make sense. I mean, in 2019, Benjamin Netanyahu himself told a Lukud party conference publicly that anyone who wants to prevent the establishment of a Palestinian state needs to support strengthening Hamas and thus balancing out claims of Fatah. So I sometimes wonder, is it a modern gender stereotype that women are not made for war, have a stake in war, think militarily, and that what they are are passive, compassionate folk who need to be be protected by the male soldiers? Or are they the ones who, in Jewish tradition, understand battle, understand war, understand what is at stake? And are there resources in the Jewish tradition so go against a modern stereotype and see a different way of understanding gender within the women of our history. I'd like to just close by reading the names of some of the women who were murdered and kidnapped. These were all spotters, spotters from there. Noah Preiss, Noam Abramovitz, Maya Polo, Hadar Miriam Cohen, Aviv Hajaj, Shachaf Nassani, Roni Eshel, Adi Landsman, Ya'el Le'Ibashur, Yam Glass, Shire Moore, Shir Elat, Shirat Yam Amer, Shir Shochat, and Shai Ashram, and from that unit were kidnapped Karina Aryev, Naama Levi, Liri Elbag, Daniello Goboa, Agam Berger, and Ori Megidish, uh, Megidish who was rescued. And, um, Noah Marciano, who was killed in captivity. May their memories bring blessings to this world. These separations of the qualities of men and women do not serve us well. They didn't serve well before the attack. And they don't serve us well because there are all kinds of qualities that are in both. Maybe the Torah is saying these are qualities are important, not like the women qualities are important and the male or some. Maybe the idea of saying there are male qualities and women qualities, it's not that we have a transgressive woman who gets to be male for a day. Yeah, ale. Right? That's kind of one reading of it. It's rather that the gender categories themselves blind us to the qualities that we all need. Does that make sense? So that's what I was trying to say when, you, when, when I wasn't trying to say, yeah, women could be boy like too. Right? I can see I've upset some people and I'll try to mend fences. I don't, think it, I don't think it behooves us to forget about Israel and Shabbat. And I don't think it behooves us to read Torah without thinking about what's going on in our lives. Because then we just live a life about not applying Torah to our lives. I had one person who visited here once. was very, very nasty to me. I was talking about the halakha of abortion. And said, I want to go back. To, I'm not orthodox, but I'm going back to an orthodox congregation. Because they don't bring in these issues of the day. Right. I'm like, well, it was the it was the legal codes that brought in the issue of the day. So I apologize. I don't think it behooves us to avoid the issues of the day. At the same time, if I'm failing to include uh, others, voices, all voices, I'm not trying to say think like me. I was really just trying to say that here we have a case of gender categories and it comes up in the context of defending ourselves and of being attacked and that it leads us to think more carefully about what are the qualities that are needed in these very, very difficult times. And I leave those decisions up to you. I wasn't trying to make those decisions for you.